Sometimes, when the week runs just a little bit long, when there's just so many great stories to pack in, wrapping it all up can take a little bit longer than you thought. This time around, the weekly wrap, dropping just a few days later than I really wanted, and compared to last week and the weeks before, it's actually more days than I would prefer. But, given all that, so much to talk about, and I tried to cram it all in to a shortest amount of time as possible, because my time, like your time, is valuable. And with news out there that we've found a black hole, well, time is about to take on a whole new meaning. For this week's weekly wrap, I share my experiences viewing the movie Shazam in the theaters, a quick history of the many, and there are many, origins of that same titled character, Shazam, once known as Captain Marvel, but following, well, an unfortunate lawsuit. It's chosen to stick with Shazam. And back to that idea of the black hole, NASA telescopes have revealed images, our first, of the mystery of space known as the black hole. What does this mean for our understanding of time and space? Well, like so many of the natural forces that surround us and we still barely understand, we're barely scratching the surface, but the fact that we have visual proof of that surface, and in doing so have proved one of the more groundbreaking theories of science we can begin moving forward in our attempt to understand just what this new knowledge and understanding brings to what we know, what we thought we know, and how we continue to try to see ourselves in the scope of this ever-expanding place outside of our world that we call space. For my final two tidbits, the Rise of Skywalker trailer opened and was revealed right before the weekend, and the speculation and exultation I don't think are stopping. It's been 40 years since A New Hope opened in theaters, and with this final chapter to that original story, we have a chance to close the book and yet at the same time provide avenues for new, exciting stories to continue. I've got more than a few thoughts about the movie that opened in theaters the year I was born and is the first movie I ever saw in a drive-in theater. More on that later in the episode. And for my final thoughts, I wanted to share a little snippet from the DC Comics News Spinner Rack number 3, a project I consider myself very lucky to be a part of and one that I continue to enjoy sharing with you. It's a project where I choose five books every week that are released by DC Comics and point out why I feel that these five books compared with the others stand out. Now, it's just my opinion, not the opinion of DC Comics News. And in doing so, it might be an opinion that disagrees with yours. The only way I'm going to know is when and if you let me know. You can either reach me on the many forms that I list at the end of this podcast, or even 
through the home base at DC Comics News. But I could keep talking about what we're going to talk about, or we could just get right into this edition of The Weekly Wrap. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. I saw the movie Shazam on Monday, and I really enjoyed the way that it opened with a fresh and magical start. Young Thaddeus Savannah, his older brother riding shotgun, his father driving, and a great cameo for those who remember the father of Lex Luthor in Smallville, giving yet another example of how not to be father of the year. The sudden transportation to the Rock of Eternity is quick, disorienting, and immerses you immediately into the Shazam mythos, and it creates the hunger for Savannah to understand and capture the power that Shazam represents and holds, and how he'll end up pursuing it through the seven deadly sins, which prove to be the reason why he fails the test to receive the wizard's magic. And it's a nice setup for him to understand the scientific way that this might be occurring, but I'll leave that detail for you to experience when you're seeing it in the movies. Suffice to say, what it does do is create the beginnings of his approach to achieving that power again, however he can, especially since it was, one, denied to him, and two, because of the way it's impacted him. And to do so through the method of science, which is the only way those who don't believe in practicing magic believe that magic can be understood. Which creates the perfect crazed mad scientist that all of us who have come to know Shazam from the comic books enjoyed so much. I might be speaking for others, but I really know that I'm speaking for myself. Now the young Billy Batson is good, and so are Shazam. Zach Levi is really impressive, but I want to talk for a moment about the supporting cast of Freddie Darla, Mary Diego, Eugene, and foster parents Rosa and Victor, who are all perfect and expertly cast. They need to be there to balance out not only Zach Levi's megawatt charm, but also to provide that mid-balance of... Arthur Asher's anguished Billy Batson. They're the ones who can lift him while he is in the midst of searching for the mother he lost when he was a boy. Darla is just so sweet and lovable. It warms the heart to hear her voice and watch her smile. Freddie holds the camera with a nervous and anxious energy of a young Dustin Hoffman, And Mark Strong, as the nemesis, is the perfect villain in his portrayal of Dr. Savannah. And his desire and quest for understanding is echoed, if not in strength, then by numbers shown through the worldwide sampling of the subjects who have been summoned by Digimon Husu's wizard and Sam Packing when they too are proven unworthy. Without going too much further into plot, and other details, what I will leave you with is that the heart of this story is one that we can all relate to as children and as adults who remember being children or might not have ever grown up at all. 
I'm not talking to anyone specific, but you know who you are. The heartbeat, it's hard to do the right thing. Hard for superheroes and the rest of us. But even if you don't have a family or find yourself making a new one, when you open your heart to the people who want to help you, be your best, you're stronger than you could ever be on your own. Oh, and the mid-credit scene is one that fans of the classic Shazam adventures will enjoy wandering over in anticipation of the sure-to-follow sequel. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Following that theme of Shazam, I came across this great article pointing out the many different and somewhat conflicting or unique origins that have come with the disappearance, reappearance, reappearance, disappearance of the man known as Shazam or Captain Marvel. I'll let you decide. We start out with his introduction, Wiz Comics number 2, 1939, which is actually titled Introducing Captain Marvel. And the article points out that what's immediately noticeable about this story, I don't know if noticeable is the word I'd use, but it's certainly evident. Uh, and maybe I'm just being picky. But it's fewer than 12 pages, and it's very clean and so economical that in their review, it's unintentionally funny. Essentially, Billy is introduced, taken to meet the wizard, gets his power, and then fights a bad guy. End of story. As it points out, it's entertaining and complete, despite the short length. So, while I'm sure it's funny in that respect, there's a part of me that also feels like it could be an example of a perfect formula for that time period, if not a great template for others to match up against. The second origin has a little bit more history and still just a bit of that lacking nuance. It's 1973. The comic is Shazam number one. And after reaching a point of being Superman's competitor all the way up until 1953, Fawcett Comics ceases publication of Captain Marvel in part because of a copyright infringement lawsuit filed by DC Comics. Two decades later, DC licensed the characters before buying them outright in 1991 and then added Shazam to a new parallel Earth known as Earth-S. This new comic was retitled Shazam to avoid the conflict and controversy with Captain Marvel over on their Marvelous competitors side of the universe and immediately picked up where Shazam had left off so long ago and it points out that this was actually quite literal in the story titled The World's Wickedest Plan by Dennis O'Neill and Batman fans will remember his name simply explains that Billy, Mary, Freddy have been gone for 20 years, but they still look like kids because they've been suspended in animation by Dr. Savannah and his 
well, strange but fiendish kids, Georgia and Savannah Jr. The comic creates uh, a clever gag for older fans and features what's described as classic Captain Marvel action. In fact, it points out that at one point, even his foes agree that it's great to be alive, right before he hauls them off to jail. High on the humor, less so on the... Mm, on the logic side, I guess, would be the, the way of describing that. Which brings us right into the next relaunch, which is Shazam! The New Beginning in 1987. Now, this occurs post-crisis, so all of those parallel universes that had multiple Earths have merged into one collective history. Now, Shazam! had already made a brief appearance during the Legends miniseries that followed, when heroes must rise to fight back against a surge of anti-hero sentiment that is actually being secretly funded and created by Darkseid's foot soldiers here on Earth. After he joins Justice League International, Shazam, or Captain Marvel, was given a four-issue miniseries written by Roy Thomas and Dan Thomas and featured art from Tom Mandrake, Rick Stasi, and a host of others. And it actually gave the hero a much more grim and difficult start. In this version, Billy's parents have died in a car crash, and he's adopted by his step-uncle, Savannah. And here, Busha and Magnificus, Savannah's children, trick Billy into thinking he's better off living with them than Uncle Dudley who's kind of an absent-minded magician. Savannah uses Billy's inheritance to complete, and this is their own wording, a dimensional warping experiment to bring Black Adam to our world, which, of course, then sets Billy on his heroic course. And that brings the last example of Shazam's origin, provided through the 1994 The Power of Shazam, now, this one was written, drawn, and painted by Jerry Ordway. And this original graphic novel superseded New Beginning, which set back Billy as a kid again. Fawcett City was kind of like a Gotham. And Black Adam was the alter ego of the guy who murdered Billy's archaeologist parents. Savannah is a ruthless tycoon. And seems more like a post-crisis Lex Luthor, which is sort of an interesting parallel. It's a mildly popular retelling, and I've heard it said by more than a few fans that it's among their favorite in representing the classic Captain Marvel uh with the modern techniques of painted comics 
and that Ordway understood how to do this, as this article points out, by making the characters look like they can move and breathe, despite the stiff imaging that painting can provide. And I know I said that was the last one, but I thought, as I had looked this over, that they had left off the most recent version of Shazam's origin. But thankfully, I see that they included the Shazam 2011 version created by and written by Jeff Johns, drawn by Gary Frank. And it was originally written as a backup second story in the Justice League launch, but later became much more prominent in the animated war movie featuring the Justice League and that introduction of Shazam. Now, in many ways, this is considered to be the foundation for which the DC movie was created, although I felt the Billy that's portrayed in the comic launched in 2011 and also in the animated series was a bit angrier, a little meaner, a little a little rougher than the demonstration portrayed by the young Billy Batson that we see in the new Shazam movie. Pause there, I thought I could remember the actor's name right off the top of my head. It's escaping me, but you just heard me say it in the last segment, so I'm doing okay. Essentially, with the 2011 book, Billy is moody, Freddie, Mary, and Darla join Eugene and Pedro, his foster siblings. And in this, Savannah is a magic-seeking archaeologist who winds up with powers after unleashing Black Adam back upon the world. The big hook is that eventually the magic lightning is shared not only with Mary Freddy, but also Billy's other siblings, creating the Shazam family, as mentioned uh, by a few people, but hopefully not me in my last segment. And with this new series, it's been created more as a family comic, much like the Marvel family that I remember watching not only on television, but reading in the comics. Given the longevity of Shazam, I have to wonder at what point we might see yet another retelling of this classic character. Given the examples I've seen so far, it sounds like, even when that happens, only the best of what I have come to know as a really great and fun character like Shazam can be retold and reshared in so many different ways and for so many generations. In 1969, NASA placed a man on the moon. And afterwards, fellow astronaut Jim Lavelle is quoted as saying, from now on, we live in a world where a man has walked on the moon. It's not a miracle. We just decided to go. I always appreciated that. And I love the way it suggested that while it's easy to make light of a monumental moment, it's also important to recognize when a monumental moment became something that was either going to be done or not done. And I love the way this quote ends with the idea that we just decided to go. 
I love this quote also because it ties me to a great NASA story that released this past week. And that was a story that, for the first time, a black hole and its shadow were captured in an image. It was a feat accomplished by using an international network of radio telescopes called the Event Horizon Telescope, which is an international collaboration whose support in the U.S. includes the National Science Foundation. Now, this is impressive because a black hole is, <laughs> as any astrophysicist can tell you, no small thing. Simply put, it's an extremely dense object from which no light can escape. The forces of gravity are so powerful that it has always been almost a scientific fact that the naked eye cannot glimpse inside a black hole. But a movie that I enjoy a great deal, um, a few, Interstellar, Contact, and more than a few others that deal with the challenge of space, gravity, and our need to accept that there are certain limitations which exist beyond our reach, that they actually uh, exceed the limits of not only our understanding, but our technical aptitude when it comes to studying or trying to understand such massive, powerful forces. And I have to enjoy that the Event Horizon Telescope Network actually references one of the most impressive aspects of the black holes in theory and now hopefully can be studied to be fact, which is the concept known as the event horizon. Once reached, it is the point of no return from which no object can uh, pass back into normal space and to which it becomes uh, permanently drawn in by the gravitational forces of the black hole. That object will be consumed. And because the forces of gravity are so strong, it will never reemerge. What makes the evidence of this black hole so special is that it was cast against a bright backdrop, which allowed the black hole to appear to cast a shadow. And this new image was actually captured in the shadow of a supermassive black hole in the center of, it's called Messier 87 or M87, which is a galaxy some 55 billion light-years from Earth. And a black hole that's 6.5 billion times the mass of our Sun. Now, uh, aside from the recognition that the black holes, which have long been a theory, have now been captured on film, and we now have physical evidence of, in a first form, it also ties back to the fact that the black hole is a foundational theory for the theory and theories of relativity first put forth by Albert Einstein close to a hundred years ago and now here we are so many decades later witnessing the proof of his theories and also learning just how much more we now will have the opportunity to learn about something that has for so long been a great mystery. I'm sure it also is no small coincidence that we have been spurred to return to the moon, according to the current uh, government administration, 
by approximately 2024 on the earliest projections and that our sense of self on the earth is measured against what we know of the earth and our sense of self in the universe is measured by what we are still trying to understand. I love that we now have an opportunity to add the black hole to a category and a list of objects that we have gained some understanding of and we are continuing to gain some of. For the longest time, the mystery of the black hole has been something that has kept us um, at an arm's length, if not further, from understanding the deeper natures of our own universe and our attempt to understand how our universe relates to so many other galaxies uh, that we might consider neighbors at some point. And as good neighbors, have the kind of understanding that we can say we have sought and worked to attain and that doing so we find ourselves worthy of seeking the next degree of understanding, the next degree of recognition of just what it is that our universe, our solar system, the space outside of the planet where we exist is not only made up of, but how that understanding can help us better understand so many of the things we would like to be able to have control of right here on Earth. And the more that our knowledge grows, the greater that our understanding becomes. I always believe that our possibility as not only a people or a civilization, but as a group mind with, uh, I think, and I hope, to be a shared effort of striving forward, is encouraged and not only enthused, but inspired to recognize what that potential means and what we're capable of when, like the Event Horizon Telescope Network, we set aside other borders and rely on something that crosses those borders. In this case, it was science. In the future, I think we have many other examples and ties that are stronger than the ones that divide us by our country's borders or our political beliefs. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. The story of my relationship with Star Wars began the year I was born. The same year that A New Hope opened in theaters. The year was 1977. Return of the Jedi, the third movie in the original trilogy installment, is the first movie that I saw at a drive-in theater. I was six. It was horrifying to see him writhing on the ground with each blast of blue lightning that erupted from the hooded master of the dark side and the way his outstretched hands seemed to violently send those electric bolts into the body of Luke Skywalker, my hero. The announcement of the final chapter in a saga that began 40 years ago 
creates an amazing mix of emotions. And those all came bubbling to the surface when I saw the Rise of Skywalker movie trailer when it dropped just before the weekend. Most pressing is the emotional weight surrounding the death of Carrie Fisher and the way her role as Princess Leia has been a constant source of continuity in the films. The departure of Han Solo in Force Awakens and Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi only makes his final appearance by the rebel who started it all more heartfelt to fans like myself who grew up with her and now we'll see only a Star Wars future without the hope of her face or voice being part of our favorite story except for this one last time now back to the trailer for Rise of Skywalker I thought it was sharp exciting and filled with heroic, terrifying, and puzzling images that only heighten the anticipation and speculation surrounding its arrival. I love the opening moment, with Rey facing down an approaching fighter jet, with only a lightsaber, and no real clear indication of exactly who's at the controls. Now, given their history for the past two movies, it would make all the sense in the world for it to be Kylo Ren. And yet, if that were true... It would seem that a close-up shot of his face and expression that registered either anger, uh, resignation, or some other sort of emotional tie for this impact between these two would have been a part of that build-up of scenes. And yet it wasn't. It was Ray versus the fighter with an unknown pilot. At least to the audience, or at least to myself. Someone else recognized something. Don't be afraid to let me know. I love a good bit of insight. Even if it's only a possibility. I also love the great montage of Leia, Finn, Poe, and even, I swear, Lando Calrissian. Part of this group of teasers. That finishes with Rey leaping over the fighter and drawing her lightsaber to strike. Currently, the only franchise to offer a similar sense of finality is the soon-to-be-released Avengers Endgame. Now, the difference here can be measured in something as simple as the amount of time between when Avengers first hit theaters and when Star Wars first appeared, which comes somewhere around a 30-year separation. And yet, at the same time, There also cannot be the same breadth and scope of measurement when it comes to the generational impact that a franchise like Star Wars has. I can talk to someone 35 years younger than me, and they have probably seen Star Wars A New Hope as many times as I have, if not more. And I can also have a great conversation with someone only... 10 years younger than me or 20 years older than me about the value of the hero's arc and hero's scope that follows the story of not only Luke but in the prequels the story of his parents. It's something that is 
so well understood across so many generations that by comparison, Star Wars will always carry that impact that few other franchises have been able to accomplish. Now, part of it was not certainly by design. I do believe if the technology were available, all of the movies that we are seeing presently in these past few years could have and would have been made if there had been either better technology or the desire to accomplish it and the feeling that fans would react the way they have when these final three chapters of the original story were not only announced but began to make their ways to the movie screens. The outpouring from fans has been global to say the least and fevered even at its lowest degrees. I'm of course looking forward to sharing and talking about more announcements as the final date draws closer and as we get more hints about what this story will be covering and how it will be attempting to draw to a close, well, again, a story that has been with us for so long that I'm sure as much as we'll enjoy this ending, there will be a part, at least for me, that will wish that it didn't have to end, that there can always be new chapters. And much to my delight, with the announcement of Disney's own streaming service this past week as well, the possibility of outlying spin-off Star Wars characters and shows that will soon be coming to that network, along with others from franchises that I've also mentioned, like the Avengers and Marvel and other groups. I, I'm heartened by the concept of, of those continuing my joy and thrill, and I have enjoyed some of the movies that didn't feature the original cast. And I've really enjoyed what directions they've been able to take and the parts of the Star Wars universe that they showed me. I still think Rogue One is one of those great movies that fits that that group. And yet, after 40 years, there's always been a sort of joy in there never being an ending to Star Wars and the ability for those of us who are fans to create our own ending, imagine our own possibilities. Now, some of that's going to come to a close once I and we have seen this last installment. And yet at the same time, this all began with something that inspired our imaginations. And even after the last movie is done, it's our imaginations, it's our memories that will carry it forward with us. It's our hearts that will be, well, not quite enheartened, <laughs> but heartened by the messages and the reminders that it's not wrong for us to believe, at least for me, it's not wrong for me to believe in the things that inspire me, and that while some of my values can feel hokey or simple in a modern world that is so much more challenging and so much more gray than the black and white that so often these stories conveniently place things. That those are values that have brought me to the place where I am and have made me the person that 
I am proud to be, and that this last chapter can continue those views and reinforce those values that began so long ago in a galaxy far, far away. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. And a newer edition of the Spinner Rack, Spinner Rack number three, is currently available. I've got five books I picked up. I'm going to give you a preview of one of the books that I was lucky enough to sit down and pull from the Spinner Rack and talk about for some length. Remember, if you like what you hear, subscribe to the DC Comics News podcast, available platforms everywhere, from the biggest like iTunes to the not-so-big, like Stitcher, or wherever you might find podcasts available for streaming. And when you do, you'll not only get a chance to hear from the weekly DC Comics News podcast, but also my weekly editions of The Spinner Rack. Also, feel free to rate and support, much like you do this broadcast. We help each other, and each time you help one of us, you help us all. By now you've seen the alert, and once the download is complete, you know it's true. That it's time for yet another episode of The Spinner Rack. I'm your host... Seth Singleton, coming to you from the DC Comics News Podcast Center, somewhere out there in the midst of podcast world, with episode number three, or issue number three, if you happen to think in comic book terms, giving you the top five books that I picked this week from that metaphysical spinning rack the one we used to run to as kids and pull books from, hoping to find another story of imagination, wonder, and maybe just a bit of escape. I'm going to kick things off today with Green Lantern number six. Now, it's billed as Hal Jordan versus Adam Strange to the death. And at the end of last issue, Hal was infiltrating the Black Stars. And after a series of loyalty challenges, he arrived on Ran and was brought to a chained up Adam Strange that he pretends that he pretends to not know. Hal has been told that he must kill Adam to complete his initiation, but the noble lantern of Sector twenty eight fourteen wants a fair fight. There's some beautiful moments that open this book, a really vintage looking shot on page four. If you think the image reminds you of something from an older comic, please let me know because I was getting that sensation even though I couldn't call to mind where or why or how I might have seen it before. This shot features Controller Mu, Rand's science minister Sardath, and Adam's wife Alana. A beautiful crescent moon window reveals three suns glowing in the distance, spilling orange light in through the window. 
Mu is arguing that he offers a painless and benevolent assumption of control over Ran by threatening first Sun Eaters and then other potential monsters as he, Alana, and Sardath walk to his ship. Now Alana is not deterred and answers that she cannot be intimidated, which is when the ship arrives at the duel taking place between Strange and Jordan. Adam is desperately trying to get a response from Hal, who only acknowledges him by saying, Shh. At the count of ten, Rand's defender is still trying to reason with Hal when both men fire their weapons, and while Hal takes a grazing shot on the right side of his neck, Adam Strange is struck in the torso, and he collapses over the span of about four panels right there at the top of page eight, just as the ship carrying Alana arrives. Alana is angry, and for all of his stoic appearance, there's a panel on page 9 where Hal appears to give a nod or a wink. Or maybe it's supposed to be confusing and taken as a look of grimace, disgust, disappointment, or shame. Now, the larger scale story is about Hal infiltrating the Black Stars and trying to disrupt their plan to collect five components necessary to assemble the ultimate asset. And it picks up here, where the ring is revealed to be component number four. And the ring is revealed to be component number four. But the Black Stars can't make it work. Something about a booby trap. And that's when things start to compound. First, Hal is given his ring back and told to make it work. But the next page and the panels on it shows that Adam is not injured, and he even states that he was placed in a coma by Hal to fake his death. Hal starts listing the ways he has served the Black Stars, and that they now have him, his ring, and his actions, the fact that he's killed someone he was sworn to protect, one of the closest planets in his sector, to which Mu says that they do have Hal, and that he knows the Guardian sent Hal to neutralize them. Hal must either swear allegiance, or if he refuses, Umu will detonate a U-bomb that Adam and Alana's daughter, Aaliyah, is playing with. The explosion will kill everyone, and it will also neutralize the Black Stars. And at this moment, Horton gets Jordan gets a message from the Guardians he must disarm the bomb, even if it costs him his life, and they are redirecting the power of the central battery to a system. Hal says he has a better idea. And on the next page, Strange is giving a memorial to the passing of Hal Jordan, the nobility of his sacrifice, and then he has a quiet moment with his wife and daughter before he suddenly disappears because once again as always occurs with Adam Strange the Zeta Beam eventually wears off and he must return to Earth his last words that he believes he hears the sound of Emperor Penguins meanwhile somewhere in space a Green Lantern ring is floating and Hal is walking across a green misty world and he admits that he does not know where he is 
or what direction he should seek. And the little old man that he's been talking to tells him to find the place called Emerald Sands. And when he gets there, to tell the people that Mirwadin sent him. Now that final image is one you have to see. The details behind the face and the colors and the misshaping of the hands and limbs that are attached to this body all shrouded under this floppy overhanging hat. It's something you have to kind of behold in order to understand and that I could continue describing and yet still not be able to give justice to. Really beautiful moment here. And I also really enjoyed the play of possibility by naming the character Mirwadin, which reminds me of the old Celtic name Myrden, which is another form of saying Merlin, the sorcerer and mystic, or however history may remember him, the guide who was a crucial player in the role of King Arthur and the mythology that comes with him. I also really enjoyed the way that my expectation that Hal would find a way out was only slowly revealed through his own language about the sort of risks he's taken on for the Black Stars and also the lines he's been willing to cross that sort of identify him with the world that he's come to police and protect and how much that has cost him and yet he still feels that he's not trusted by them which is why when he finally is given the go-ahead from the guardians that his job is to stop what's about to happen and that they've given him the power to do so I really enjoy the idea that he recognizes the moment and then in one of the fading speech bubbles says but he has a better idea clearly that idea saves the people of Ran somehow it also neutralizes Mu and the Black Stars and yet the result of it is that Hal is now lost in a strange land and based on the images of the ring floating in space before we see him in this green misty place leads me to consider that he's somewhere within the energies of the ring somehow he's found a way there to stay safe but that the process was such a challenge to his human mind that he had to change himself in order to exist or that the ring had to change him in order for him to exist there and now it's the story about him finding his way back this one was a solid four out of five for me but I'll be curious to hear from you on what your score was and whether or not you agree or disagree with any of the thoughts I had about Green Lantern number six. And that was a quick clip from Spinner Rack number three.
the Spinner Rack Podcast, a production of DC Comics News. You can listen to episodes of the Spinner Rack by going to dccomicsnews.com and looking for the podcast tab and clicking on it. You can find not only the Spinner Rack, but also the DCN podcast episodes for this past week and all the weeks that came before. If you don't want to worry about missing an episode, you can, of course, as I mentioned earlier, subscribe to not only the DC Comics News podcast, which will then automatically subscribe you to the Spinner Rack, but you can also click on the link for this podcast and subscribe to Storytelling with Seth to make sure that, just in case, there's something else you might want to know about, you can always say, you heard it here first. I think it's always important to say thank you. And I know that on a day-to-day basis, it can be hard to feel anything close to heroic. But you should know that every time you press play on this podcast, you're supporting me financially. And that makes you a hero to me and a hero to the podcast Storytelling with Seth. I'm not here able to do this without your support. And when you use platforms like Radio Public, where three plays in a row earns me $1 right off the bat, your support is something that you might not even realize just how much value comes from each time you press play, each time you share an episode, each time you listen to more than one. Now, some people have asked about supporting more deeply or at a higher level, and I wanted to make sure to share this in an episode that you can always visit anchor.fm slash storytellingwithseth. Or click on the link that's almost always associated with this podcast, which will bring you to that homepage. And there's a support sponsor tab that you can click on. And there's a a few different levels of support you can provide. I, of course, am encouraged every time you press play. That, to me, is the easiest and best example of support I could ever hope for. But for those who have inquired, I wanted to make sure that I started providing this information at the end of podcasts, so it's something you can consider, because I don't want you to have to hunt me down just to let me know that you want to give financial support to storytelling with Seth. As always, thank you again for listening, and thank you again for each time you press play. It supports storytelling with Seth, and it makes you a little more heroic each and every time.